Drive through any small town in Canada or the northern United States, and one feature will continuously appear as a staple of these communities. Whether it's a hyperbolic stereotype, bias confirmation, or truly a symbol of community, there seems to always be a hockey arena. And in the history of hockey, the role of an arena is looked at both as a nostalgic place of youth hockey experiences as well as a facet of a strong community. Chris Cuthbert and Scott Russell outline the importance of a hockey arena in their book, appropriately titled The Rink. The hockey arena is the place where many Canadians grow to maturity, and as much as the church or the school, it allows people of communities to gather for entertainment and fellowship. Even those who spent time in arenas as siblings who did not participate, but either voluntarily or not sat in the stands, came to understand that the importance of hockey in Canada as a cultural piece started in the arena. It is a great equalizer, where inside the arena, it included everyone for the same purpose. Mark Crawford, now assistant coach with the Chicago Blackhawks, remembered scouting talent across Canada and came up with a foolproof method of locating the local hockey arena. If I didn't know where the rink was, I looked for the city hall or the church. I knew if I found one of those, the arena was close by. In this single plan, Crawford demonstrates the importance of the arena to both the establishment that is Canadiana culture as well as the importance to the community that is the hockey arena. In the late 1800s, as hockey in a professional context expanded, the investment in hockey arenas grew. People who owned rinks could own a hockey team or even a league, and the professional game quickly moved to share its influence with these cultural centers. Arenas often served multiple purposes, as in much of eastern Canada, the cold season that allowed for a reasonable workload to be placed on the refrigeration system remained short. Horse and car shows would fill the timetable the rest of the year. In Hockey Mad Montreal, the rinks shifted to the focus on hockey more significantly than other locations. In New York, for example, arena management could only expect 10% of their revenue to come from hockey, while the rest came from other events. In Montreal, however, up to 75% of it came from hockey. In Montreal, however, the identity of the community could not be as clearly defined, both because of its lack of history as a small location, it almost instantly became a significant business hub in what would become Canada, but also because of its linguistic and cultural divide. Montreal has always been associated with the French-Canadian-speaking portion of Eastern Canada. However, the city has always been home to a significant portion of English-speaking residents. In the 1800s, with no real ties to their French homeland, French-speaking Canadians developed their own cultural identity within the English-dominated nation. As hockey developed into part of the Canadian shared experience, it's no shock that a line was made dividing English and French hockey fandom and support in Montreal. The end result was two hockey teams, one team we still benefit from today, the Montreal Canadiens. The other, however, only lasted four games in the league, and their existence, both in their most successful years and during their demise, was deeply rooted in the arena that they played in. The Montreal Wanderers, as they were known, played out of the same arena as the Canadians and had experienced a string of success many teams would only dream of having. So what happened to them? Why didn't they succeed in the same way that the other teams did at the time? And how did the end of their team bring about some of the most iconic moments in NHL history? Salut, je m'appelle Travis Duncan, et oui, je parle en français. Quelle surprise, et bienvenue à Storytime Hockey.
The Montreal Wanderers were founded in 1903 by sports businessman James Strachan. Montreal had a wide range of hockey clubs and all were separated by some sort of cultural or language difference that crowded the hockey landscape. Montreal had the Nationals, the Shamrocks, Les Canadiens, and the Wanderers, and they all found themselves dividing their localized talents around different identities. The Wanderers were founded to appeal to the English language support of the city. Early editions of Lord Stanley's Dominion Challenge Cup saw the Wanderers experience success immediately. Thanks to a dispute with another Montreal hockey club, their team was rejected in an attempt to join the Canadian Amateur Hockey League and helped create the Federal Amateur Hockey League with other spurned clubs in 1904. The Montreal Nationals were the French language team in this league and the Wanderers made up their roster with players who had fallen out of favour or had lost confidence in the other Canadian Amateur Hockey League clubs. This led to the Wanderers instantly having the quality required to produce a strong, competitive squad. The league itself was nearly impossible to keep up with, as teams in the first season left and joined the league and in its second year even the Wanderers left the league to join the Eastern Canada Amateur Hockey Association. In 1906 the team would challenge the Ottawa Silver Sevens for the Stanley Cup. In the two game aggregate final, the Wanderers would win game one with a score of 9-1. In game two, Ottawa would lead by the same score tying the series on aggregate, only to allow two late goals to the Montreal side, giving the edge to the Wanderers and their first Stanley Cup championship. Montreal would defend their championship against New Glasgow in December 1906, then lose the cup to the Kenora Thistles in 1907, only to regain it two months later in March. The Wanderers, while winning three ECAHA titles in a row, would defend the cup again in January 1908 on a challenge from the Ottawa Victorias. They defended the cup in March 1908 twice, facing the Winnipeg Maple Leafs and the Toronto Professional Hockey Club, frequently re referred to as the Argonauts. The Wanderers, having experienced this huge success in their own league, as well as at a Stanley Cup level, were now a valuable commodity and had piqued the interest of PJ Doran. Doran owned the Jubilee rink in the east of Montreal. The major issue with this rink though was that the arena had less seats, which would cause smaller revenue share of gate sales for visiting teams. This didn't stop the sale from going through, or the move to the Jubilee rink and the team would defend their title again in 1909 to the Edmonton Eskimos before losing it to the Ottawa Hockey Club. In a reaction to Doran purchasing and moving the team to the smaller rink and hurting the financial health of the league, the other teams in that league left and created the Canadian Hockey Association, leaving the Wanderers stranded. They would be picked up by Ambrose O'Brien's fledgling attempt to start a league called the National Hockey Association, which would include teams in Cobalt, Haleybury, Renfrew, as well as the Wanderers and a O'Brien financially supported team in Montreal called the Canadians. The CHA would come years later and merge with the NHA and teams would be placed in Toronto. This league would eventually become the beginnings of the modern NHL. Sports businessman Sam Lichtenhain would purchase the Wanderers in 1911. The team had seen more competitive times, finishing mid to bottom of the NHA. But despite this, they were not far removed from their time of massive success. Around this time, both the Wanderers and the Canadians moved into the Westmount Arena. The Westmount Arena, also known as the Montreal Arena, was located at the corner of Rue St. Catherine and Wood Avenue in the western end of Montreal, an area dominated by English-speaking residents and businesses. The arena was built in 1898 and its contribution to the professionalization of the sport in Canada cannot be understated. The arena was the first to use four-foot fencing, now more commonly referred to as boards, around the playing surface. 
which both increased physical contact between players, but allowed them to use the boards in play. At the time, passing forward was still not permitted in the game, so players who had a higher puck handling ability often succeeded. The arena was a two-story brick-faced building, built of wood and steel trusses. The arena was the first hockey-specific building in Canada, and instantly became a local source of entertainment and pride. The arena was built to hold 4,000 seated in the benches among the stands. However, it had been known to fit nearly 7,000 spectators with some frequency. The Montreal Arena was the linchpin in the Montreal hockey scene. As hockey became more professional, amateur teams in city leagues also began to grow. Here we need to revisit the idea of the hockey teams being created among divisive cultural lines. Teams in Montreal had been established along ethnicities and linguistic lines, as Canada became a massive melting pot due to heavy immigration numbers. Montreal was a city of the vanquished living among the victors. The Shamrocks were a team with strong Irish roots, the Nationals represented the French language citizens, and the Victorias showed the presence of a strong Scottish contingent. However, as the professional game grew, the development of teams across linguistic and cultural lines began to fade, and soon city-centric leagues and teams took the stage. Inner-city leagues replaced these thanks to their local support, and they soon shared rinks with professional teams. These professional teams began to have an alliance with the actual community that they served. Around this time, the Wanderers began to struggle. The emergence of the Pacific Coast Hockey Association created a competition for players and drove up salaries, salaries that owner Lichtenhain was not necessarily prepared to pay. They did not have top quality players either, and those that they did have never remained long. It wasn't too long before the team started to see their on-ice product impact revenues in their arena, and soon their team was finishing at the bottom of the league in both the standings as well as revenues. At the same time, trouble was brewing in the National Hockey Association as ownership began to struggle with internal conflict surrounding the owner of the Toronto Blue Shirts, Eddie Livingstone. When the National Hockey League was founded in 1917, it did not include Livingstone or his team as the new league members had resigned from the NHA and followed Frank Calder to this new league. The owners of the team in this league felt they had no choice but to leave, since they couldn't kick out Livingstone legally. And at the same time, Livingstone had made it clear at the time he wasn't going anywhere. The NHL started with four franchises, the Wanderers, Canadian, the Ottawa Senators, and a temporary team placed in Toronto, done so to keep a team in Toronto that they could make sure was not controlled by Livingstone. Players who belonged to the NHA Toronto team would be leased to the NHL so that they could play, but Livingstone would retain their rights, and he would try to work his way back into the league. The Quebec Bulldogs, in an effort to balance the schedule, withdrew from the league and their players were dispersed. It is very easy to get confused in this time frame, because there is so much happening and so much happening all at once. A few things that need to be kept in mind as separate factors that all impact the end result. Eddie Livingstone owned a team in Toronto in the National Hockey Association, but no longer had anyone else to play against. Second, those players that he did own were leased or loaned to the National Hockey League Toronto team. The team was managed by the Toronto Arena Company and was referred to as the Arenas. They would end up wearing blue and the media would refer to them as the blue shirts. However, they were a different franchise than Livingstone's Toronto Blue Shirts. Third, there was a war. The First World War was in full swing and was taking a toll on players that were available. Lastly, the Quebec franchise had withdrawn and their players were dispersed within the league. With those points in mind, we can start to address the unraveling of the Wanderers. When the Quebec Bulldogs folded, the players on their roster were sent throughout the league in a dispersal draft. 
the Wanderers inherited the likes of David Ritchie, Jack McDonald, George Carey, and Jack Marks. All of them were fine players, but nothing like the players who they didn't get, including Rusty Crawford, Joe Malone, and Joe Hall. Not to excuse the Wanderers of their own fault in this, as they did in fact hold the first pick in the dispersal draft, but selected David Ritchie, who, while scoring 17 goals in 19 games the year before, they still bypassed Joe Malone, who had recorded 41 goals in the same year. Perhaps the team was scared off by Malone's full-time job with the Quebec government, whose earnings were about to exceed that that he earned in hockey, but he still had a year before that started. They also selected Jack McDonald over Joe Hall, who would also go on to feature in the league, as well as our earlier podcast on the 1919 Stanley Cup Final. On top of not getting the best players available in the dispersal draft, the Wanderers were navigating the issues of the First World War and the move of the Canadian government to implement conscription in the country. With more and more men dying on the front lines of the battlefields of Europe, nations on both sides were forced into changing their recruitment methods. Odie Cleghorn was one of the individuals who was targeted for conscription. Born and raised in the Westmount neighborhood of Montreal, Odie and his brother Sprague were early NHL stars. Odie was the goal scorer, having recorded the third most goals in the NHA the year prior. Sprague was a large defenseman, referred to sometimes as the best at his position. And at the start of the war, many recruits to the Canadian war effort had strong British ties, as many had been recent immigrants from that nation. By 1916, however, recruitment efforts were increased and conscription was enforced by Prime Minister Robert Borden in mid-1917. Odie was notified that he would be conscripted for the war effort. However, his business interests granted him exemption from the tribunal under the condition that he did not play hockey. Harry Highland as well was conscripted, but successfully avoided service. And on top of this, as the season drew near, Sprague Cleghorn was walking outside of Westmount Arena and slipped on ice on Rue Saint-Catherine. He hurt his ankle, and the injury looked like it might not only cost him the season, but also ran the chance of ending his career. He even sued the city of Montreal for, their, for his injury and would not play that year. At the Wanderers' first practice, manager Art Ross ran a practice with only three players. George Carey refused to report to the Wanderers. David Ritchie didn't report either. Jack Marks went to practice in Toronto in an effort to hold out for a trade there. The Wanderers, simply put, did not have enough players willing to play for them to field a team. Harry Highland would eventually arrive at practice with the Wanderers, but as the season approached, it was clear that the Wanderers might not meet the competitive level required to compete in the NHL, let alone find any success. They did not even have a full team for their first two practices, and as their roster filled out, it was clear that the players were not at the caliber required to succeed in the league. Owner Lichtenhain looked at the dispersal draft of the Bulldogs franchise as a turning point where the league still owed him something. He told reporters, I must have players turned over to me by the other clubs, and must know definitely where I stand by Saturday night or I will withdraw the Wanderers. The league had not even begun play, and yet one team was threatening to pull out of contention. Calder, the president of this league, was shocked by the quickness in which Lichtenhain moved to quitting the league instead of trying to solve his player predicament. Manager Art Ross made it very clear to reporter Elmer Ferguson, Unless the other clubs hand us over players at once, the Wanderers will not think of operating this season, he said. We have lots of amateur material out with us, but this will not make us strong enough to cope with the other teams. Canadians owner George Kennedy had made it clear the time to complain about roster management and player contracts was before the schedule was made up. The reality was, a team is always going to come last in a tournament. The issue was, 
the Wanderers believed they were so far below the level of other teams. While this was happening, the Toronto Arena franchise was being operated by Charlie Query. Query didn't have the ability to transfer players like a regular manager through trades because they technically did not belong to his franchise but were loaned to him by Ed Livingstone's suspended NHA franchise. Under threat of quitting, eventually he gained control over the players. Frank Calder suggested that the Wanderers and Blue Shirts swap holdouts. Jack Marks for Harry Mummery. Query wouldn't approve of this trade unless he had confirmation that Mummery would actually report. This essentially squashed the deal in the end. In a last-ditch effort to support the team, George Kennedy offered to loan players to the Wanderers if they would pay their contracts. Walter Mummery and Tommy Smith were two names offered to them. However, despite the offer, it was clear to the league now that owner Lichtenhain was prepared to cut his losses and just avoid spending money. The team had been struggling both on the ice and at the gate in previous years. And if the team was going to survive, Lichtenhain clearly believed that it was the responsibility of the league to help him do so. All of these efforts were in vain as the league started despite the team looking for some sort of support. The Wanderers won their first game 10-9 on the back of a 5-goal effort from Harry Highland. Reports for the game chalked it up as a lucky win. The reports of the game the next day outlined that the game was a demonstration of the scarcity of players as men who would have not been substitutes a year ago were on the bench of both teams last night. It seemed the Wanderers were out of their league. As the following games, the Wanderers lost 11-2 to the Canadians and then back-to-back -back losses to the Ottawa Senators, 6-3 and 9-2. In the fourth game, the Wanderers were finally joined by dispersal draft victim Marks, and Art Ross, the manager, even suited up for the Wanderers and hurt his back ending his playing career. This brings us to the 2nd and 3rd of January, the two most important dates in the history of the Wanderers. On January 3rd, a meeting was scheduled to determine what to do with the Wanderers. Not only were they far behind the levels required for the league, but also the issues stemming from the dispersal drafts continued. The Toronto franchise needed a goalie, and Harry Holmes was returning from the PCHA. However, the Wanderers had an agreement with the PCHA about player transfers, and Holmes remained their property. If Toronto wanted him, they would have to trade for him. The trade agreement was drawn up, and Alf Skinner would be sent to the Wanderers in exchange for Harry Holmes. But at the same time, the Wanderers had made the trade conditional on support from the league to keep their team competitive. They demanded that both Joe Malone and Rusty Crawford, both former Quebec Bulldogs, be transferred to the Wanderers. Malone was the top scorer for Crosstown Montreal, so there was very little interest in that transfer. And Crawford was setting himself up for another strong season. In the eyes of the Wanderers, both players were from the Bulldogs franchise, so it wasn't really like the team that they took them from was losing players. They were just going to the team that they were supposed to be with in the first place. To no one's surprise, Montreal and Ottawa were not in support of this idea, hence the scheduled meeting on January 3rd. On January 2nd, 1918, the Wanderers were scheduled to play the Canadians at the Westmount Arena, home to both teams. Just before noon, a fire broke out in the building. The only people inside the arena at the time were Arena Superintendent James McKean and his family, who were eating in their adjacent apartment on the north end of the building. The fire quickly overtook the building. The fire was believed to have started near the players' dressing rooms close to the refrigeration system of the building. The steel trusses of the building collapsed under the intense heat and the boiler explosion knocked out walls. When firefighters arrived, the arena fire had spread across the street to residences, with the arena all but engulfed 
the firefighters left it to burn while they protected the surrounding area. The McKean family lost all of their personal belongings and all of the team's equipment was destroyed. The arena was gone. It needs to be emphasized again that the arena here was more important than simply just a place of hockey. It was referred to as the hockey mecca of the time, a major symbol in the identity of English hockey and hockey in general in Montreal. The game that night was cancelled and the following day the meeting of the NHL governors occurred. The new owners of the Jubilee Rink in East Montreal had offered their rink as a place to play for the rest of the season. Lichtenhain had no interest in moving to the Jubilee Rink. It was half the size of the Westmount Arena, and it was in a traditionally French-speaking area of Montreal. His team, who had latched on to the English identity, hadn't been able to draw fans in the English neighborhood, so he knew that they would not travel in the French neighborhood to support the team either. The Quebec Bulldogs owner offered their rank as well, but again, Lichtenhain turned them down. At the meeting, he continued to demand players be sent to his squad, and the other owners continued to decline. The Canadians, however, with their competitive squad, moved to the Jubilee Arena, and they were prepared to continue their season. They just needed equipment. They gathered what equipment they could and borrowed jerseys from City League team Hokelaga, preserving their red and white color scheme that we continue to see with the franchise today. On January 5th, the Wanderers squad had a scheduled game in Toronto. According to the governors, the team was expected to be there. Lichtenheim didn't even allow his team to board the train to go to Toronto. The league had assumed that the $3,000 bond that the owner had placed at the beginning of the season would be enough to convince Lichtenheim to continue with the league and put his issues behind him. But it wasn't. The league was left with no other choice than to suspend the Wanderers. Frank Calder awarded Toronto and the Canadians one win and one goal in the standings, so that each team in the league had two recorded wins versus the Wanderers in the standings. He chose this option over erasing the Wanderers' previous games because he felt that there was a proof of play that had occurred, and therefore needed to be respected in the standings. The January 5th game against Toronto was declared as not played, because there was no proof of play. Days later, Lichtenhain would reveal his financial losses. Over two years, he had lost over $180,000 between the Wanderers and his Montreal Royals baseball club, approximately $2 million in today's currency. The players on his Wanderers squad were dispersed through the league. Harry Holmes went to Toronto and then moved to the PCHA the next year. Richie went to Ottawa. Highland retired after one year with Ottawa. Jack Marks went to Toronto. And Ert Ross would end up managing the Hamilton Tigers before moving to Boston as their manager during their expansion. Amazingly, this fire was not the only one that had impacted the Lichtenhain sports and business world, and this was the end of a very tough period of time for him. His baseball park had twice had fires in 1914 and 1916, then there was the Westmount Arena fire in 1918, followed by the folding of the Wanderers and the Royals later in that calendar year. Lichtenhain's family had moved to Montreal following the Great Chicago Fire, where his father had lost his business in 1871. In the end, this would establish the Canadian as the sole hockey team in Montreal. Years later, James Strachan, the man who had originally founded the Wanderers, tried to revitalize the team. He was unable to buy the naming rights to the Wanderers. The team would eventually become known as the Maroons, thanks to a large crimson M on the front of their jerseys. But this team would not survive the Great Depression. While many people draw a connection from the fire of the Westmount Arena on January 2nd, it is clear that there is a wider collection of influences on the Wanderers that led to the dismantling of the Montreal English Identity Team. Sure, the fire of the arena did not help, but Lichtenhain's unwillingness to work with his governors and demanding players set an immediate tone for the league in their first year. 
and the other owners felt no obligation to support his claims. Fast forward to today where Montreal remains the only team in the province of Quebec and a team who holds strong ties to a language and cultural identity other than English. The identity of Quebec is canonized with the existence of the Canadians. The public outcry for a bilingual management to better represent the franchise was at its height following the hiring of Randy Cunningworth in 2011. Currently, major franchise roles are held by Claude Julien and Marc Bergevin. It's very likely that had the fire at Westmount not occurred, the future success of the Canadians, as well as the province's allegiances to one team, could have likely shifted had there been another team in serious consideration for their support. The next section of the podcast will focus on players who you may or may not have forgotten about. With no real rhyme or reason to the selection of these players, this portion of the podcast will be dedicated to the players that score occasionally, get traded for second round picks, and sometimes even win an award. This is Storytime Hockey, the players you forgot about. With the current pause in the NHL and the shift to a playdown series ending the regular season, one of the storylines that the hockey world was robbed of was the Maurice Rocket Richard trophy race for player with the most goals scored in a season. The award this year will be shared between Alexander Ovechkin and David Pasternak, who both recorded 48 goals at the time of the pause. With players like this, the conversation around the generational talents of players and the role best goal scorer of all time always come up, especially when discussing Ovechkin. He's widely regarded as the best goal scorer of his generation of hockey players. Gretzky is by far the most successful goal scorer, but he also dominated the assist column during his career. And research into the best goal scorer of all time often overlapped with our research of the Montreal Wanderers and a player that they desperately tried to acquire. Maurice Joseph Malone, simply known as Joe Malone, was born on February 28, 1890, in Sillery, Quebec. He grew up playing a variety of sports, including the always linked to hockey sport of lacrosse. And at 17, he joined his first organized hockey efforts with the Quebec City Crescents. This put his first game in 1907, an important year to keep in mind, as by 1909, only two years after joining the organized game, he was already featuring for the Quebec Bulldogs of the Eastern Canada Hockey Association. In his first year with the Bulldogs, he played 12 games and recorded 8 goals. The following season, the Bulldogs joined the Canadian Hockey Association, a move that we discussed earlier, leading to the team's starting the National Hockey Association. The Quebec squad only lasted two games before being folded, and Malone scored five goals in these two games. He spent the rest of the year with the Waterloo Colts of the Ontario Professional Hockey League, where he played 10 games and had six goals and 10 assists. The Bulldogs got the band back together in 1910 for the NHA season, and Malone continued to demonstrate that despite joining the sport late, he was a dominant scoring force in the league. He scored 9 goals in 13 games, and then in 1911, scored 21 in 18. Malone began to establish himself as one of the fastest players in the professional game, and he used that speed to cut through the defensive organizations of his opponents. He was made captain of the squad as soon as the Bulldogs reacquired him. 
He led the Bulldogs to two Stanley Cups in 1912 and 1913. In 1912, the Bulldogs defeated the Moncton Victorias, essentially the same team that had challenged the year prior, but was at that point based in Galt, Ontario. Quebec won the first game 9-3 and the second 8-0. Malone had five goals in two games. In 1913, however, Malone really exploded as a player. During the season, he recorded 43 goals in 20 games. In the Stanley Cup Challenge, the Sydney Millionaires challenged the Bulldogs from the Maritime Professional Hockey League. They were in their first season as a team, and unfortunately for them, they fell victim to a dominant Quebec franchise. In the first game, Joe Malone scored 9 goals, as the Bulldogs won 14-3. The difference between the two squads was so significant that Malone did not even dress in the second game, which Quebec won 6-2. Malone continued to dominate the goal scoring in the National Hockey Association. In 1916, he scored 41 goals in 19 games. It was then that the NHA dismantled as teams left the league and created the NHL, and the Quebec roster was dispersed among the new teams. Malone was picked second by the Montreal Canadiens and immediately repaid them for their choice. Malone was moved to the left wing to accommodate his new centerman Nuzi Lalonde, who was widely regarded as one of the original hockey stars, as well as linemate Didier Pitre. He recorded 44 goals and 4 assists in 20 games. This goal scoring outburst would remain as the league record until 1945, when Maurice Richard would finally surpass him with 50 goals in 50 games, which, while still impressive, doesn't represent nearly the same goals per game average that Malone had produced. In fact, if Malone's point-per-game average was stretched over an 82-game schedule, it would result in 180 goals. He scored one goal, 35 in total, during his first 14 games to set the record for the longest goal-scoring streak to begin a career and the longest goal-scoring streak at the time. Now second to punch Broadbent, who scored a goal in 16 straight games in 1921-1922. Malone would miss a significant portion of the next season, suffering from an injured arm. He would play 8 games, recording 7 goals and 2 assists, and appear briefly in the NHL Finals for their series against the Ottawa Senators. But he would not feature in the 1919 NHL Stanley Cup Championship, which we discussed in Episode 2. The next season, Quebec returned as a franchise in the league, and Malone returned to the club. In this season, he would score score 39 goals in 24 games. In one game in particular, Malone established one of the greatest individual hockey accomplishments that will likely never be approached. The Bulldogs had started the season with one win in 11 games, and he was one of the solitary reasons to attend a game as a fan. On January 31st, 1920, Malone's Bulldogs faced the Toronto St. Pats. Seven minutes into the game, Malone scored and was quickly answered by Reg Noble. The Bulldogs would edge ahead in the first and finish the period up 3-2. Quickly into the second period, Malone would score again, followed by St. Pats Corp Denny, bringing them close. Malone would score two more and the St. Pats would add one in the second, leading to a score of 6-4, Malone now with four goals in two periods. Mickey Roach would score for Toronto in the third and George Carey would score for Quebec, followed by Cully Wilson for Toronto, putting the score at 7-6 for the Bulldogs. Malone would end the night by scoring three goals in succession, giving him a natural hat-trick and a new record of seven goals in a single game. Malone's record of goals in a game still stands alone, and he shares second place with six goals in a game with seven other players, including Newsy Lalonde and Daryl Sittler's 10-point game. Malone also had three games with five goals in a single match. Since 2000, only a handful of players have even scored five goals in a game. Marion Gabrick scored five for the Wild in 2001-2002, 
2007, Johan Franzen for Detroit in 2011, Patrick Laine had 5 goals for the Jets in 2018, and most recently, Mika Zibanejad scored 5 including the overtime winner versus Washington this past March. This win was only Quebec's second of the season, and they would go on to win only 2 more games that year. Malone would move with the franchise to Hamilton, where he recorded 28 goals in 20 games in 1920-1921, and another season of 24 goals in 24 games. Unfortunately for Malone, his skills fell off quickly after the age of 30. In the 22-23 season, he played 20 games with the Canadians, only with one goal. In his final year, 10 games, no goals. He would retire at the end of the season. The Canadians won the cup that year, and he is considered a three-time champion because of it, however, he never played in the final series. He would finish his NHA career with 123 games played and 179 goals, and in the NHL, he played 126 games and scored 143 goals. Not only were his goal-scoring stats outstanding, but so were his assist totals, but for a different reason. Over the combined 249 games, he only recorded 59 assists. Games were incredibly high scoring at this time, but also there was no forward passing, and goals were scored thanks to the speed and ability to stick handle, while at the same time only primary assists were recorded. Who knows what Malone's stats would have looked like had he been part of the sport that recorded them. Malone not only dominated offensively in the leagues he featured in, but he was a huge draw at the gate. The Bulldogs, Tigers, and Canadians all used him as a way to bring fans to their games. We've made clear the importance of fans purchasing tickets to keep a team financially solvent. When the Wanderers were flailing financially in the 1917-18 season, and following their fire that they shared with the Canadians of their arena, leading them to fold the team, it's worth wondering if the franchise that we see today, based in La Belle Province, would have survived the financial trials of the fire, the wars, and the Great Depression, had they not ridden the success brought to them by the man known as the Phantom. Today though, a statue in honor of the player rests outside the Videotron Center, the home of the suggested NHL franchise should one return to Quebec City. It may play out over time that Malone might just secure the future of a second NHL franchise in the same province. Storytime Hockey is written and produced by me, Travis Duncan, proud employer of more people than the Buffalo Sabres. Thank you for listening. Please follow us on Twitter at Storytime Hockey. Click like, subscribe, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Every interaction we have with you increases the odds that we will appear in a friend's suggested podcast list. So be a good neighbor and hit five stars. Thank you for listening, and we will talk to you again next episode. <laughs>